Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Sermon title this morning is Victory, the Victory of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 to 22. You can go ahead and open your Bibles and look there with me, and I'm going to read it. And as I'm reading, you'll understand if you've not read ahead, then you'll understand for the first time here why I say that this is a difficult passage. Starting in verse 18. For Christ suffered, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds this to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ." who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Right now we can see from this passage some really, really clear things in the midst of some very, very unclear things that have really been divisive down for centuries now. There are a few things that we can recognize at the end that we're going we're gonna to go to here in just a little bit, but I want us to start at the beginning, at the end. Jesus is on his throne. That's a good thing. We see that clearly. He has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God. That's Jesus. So Jesus is on the throne. His kingdom is here now. It is already established. It's being established and it's growing. It's just a matter of time for his reign and rule to be visibly demonstrated throughout everywhere and every place. And uh, we're thankful for that. We're thankful in the midst of what is so chaotic and crazy we're thankful for passages like this because it helps us. It brings us comfort. On a day like this, uh, we turn on the news and you know we've, we've talked about that and, and gone over that many times. There are things that seem to be just chaotic. It just seems like things are running its course in the most evil manner possible. But passages like this that are really clear in the midst of things that are really unclear uh, are really comforting to us. And so as we work through these, these sections of, in these verses today, of this uh, end of chapter 3 in 1 Peter... We just need to be reminded that Jesus is on his throne and everything has been subjected to him. And that's really clear and it's really comforting to us today. Um, So as we look at this, we have to keep that in mind. Even in this highly debated section of scripture, these statements are really, really clear. And it's clarity in the midst of difficulty, which is just very neat. So we're not going to avoid the difficult passage. We're going to love them. We're going to love these verses, even if we may come to some different conclusions about these verses. And uh, it's just not that big of a deal if we don't see everything in the Scriptures in the exact same way. We talked about that last week, where we want unity, but we can't demand uniformity. So as we look at this, you're going to maybe see it a little bit differently than I do. And I'm going to lay out what I think this text is going to be saying in every way that I can. And I'm going to try to be as faithful as I can. But... People have just disagreed for a long time about these verses. However, there are some really clear things. So let's just take a look, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is very, very clear. It's very simple for us to understand. It's the shallow end of the Christian faith and the deep end of the Christian faith. Let's work through this. Jesus never sinned. 
Jesus never sinned. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus was righteous, we were unrighteous. To be righteous means to be sinless. Jesus never sinned a day in his life. And yet, he suffered for those that are unrighteous. He died in their place. This is the basics of the Christian faith. This is substitution, substitutionary atonement. Jesus never sinned, you and I sinned, and every single person who's ever breathed in the history of the world, from Adam forward, all like Adam have gone astray. We were there with him in the garden, and then we also, even though we were born in sin and iniquity, accumulated our own sin and iniquity through living our life from our earliest years. That's why we always have to train little children to do the right thing, not do the wrong thing. Little children know how to do the right thing very, very well. They have to learn to do the right thing. That's the frustrating thing about discipline as parents is that you have to keep doing the same lessons over and over and over again. And then slowly over time, the, the right thing is caught. But it takes time because what's already there ingrained deep within them is the wrong thing. Okay? So we have to teach the right thing. So Jesus was the righteous. We were the unrighteous. Our sins earned God's wrath. That's why a penalty had to be paid. Because justice, God, to be just, has to punish sin. He can't just wash his hands with sin. Therefore, you and I had to be punished. And the great thing about the grace of God is that we were punished in Jesus Christ. Our sins earned God's wrath. And yet Jesus, the eternal one, the eternal being, God in the flesh, being fully God and fully man, he suffered in a time and space reality in history as a man in the place of real human beings. So our sin against a cosmic and eternal God, Jesus had to come as eternal God in the flesh, and in time, the eternal being died. Jesus dies. The righteous one gave himself for the unrighteous, and he did this to bring us to the Father. And with all the controversy that surrounds around these passages, this is not one of them. It shouldn't be. If you think that's controversial, then you're outside of the Christian faith. You have to believe that. Jesus died in the place of real sinners. That's at the heart of the Christian faith. Substitution. Christ's life for me. Christ's life for you. Christ's life in the place of the sinner. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve to die. Now, unfortunately, for a long time, liberalism always attacks things like the image of God, gender, sexuality. But liberalism always attacks the, the atonement of Jesus Christ as well. So if you go to mainline denominations, church, big church buildings in our town, there are many church buildings in our town that deny the heart of the Christian message, which is death by substitution, Jesus dying in the place of sinners. And they'll say the atonement was something else, but it wasn't appeasing God the Father's wrath. It was something else. It was, uh, it was maybe vicarious. It was maybe uh, an, an exemplary thing that Jesus did, but it wasn't substitution. And yet, the text right here clearly tells us the heart of the gospel, the Christian message, is Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And we, by the grace of God, we, we don't ever need to get over that. The, the day we die, we should understand that more than the day we became a Christian. You know, there's something that happens when you're walking with the Lord for a very long time. When you're walking with the Lord for a long time, you start to understand the depth of your sin to a degree you didn't understand your, your sin five years ago or ten years ago. You're actually walking in greater and greater obedience, but the, the interesting thing about the Christian life is 30 years from now, 30 years from now, so if God gives me another 30 years, then I'll be 68, 68 years old, and I should understand at 68 better than I do today this verse. 
I should understand the depth of my sin and the depths of, depths of God's grace to a greater degree then than I do now. You see, as we grow in holiness, we also grow in, in real obedience. We also grow in our understanding, my goodness, God has been gracious to me. And the longer you walk with the Lord, if you get 30 years down the road and think, you know, God's grace really isn't as impressive anymore as it used to be, then you're missing it. You're missing it. The older you get, the more you realize God has been gracious to save me. God has been kind to me. I've not deserved this. You start to get a laser focus on your own selfishness that you didn't see before. Uh, it's a weird thing. When you, when you get older, you're, you don't really start, you know, you start to see some things and you're like, I'm, I'm, I can't boast about my humility because I'm selfish. And it's the Holy Spirit's work in me and it's the Holy Spirit's work in you and it's the Holy Spirit's work in us as we grow older to realize, my goodness, I am selfish in areas of my life. And God's been gracious to me. We don't ever get past verses like this. The righteous one died for the unrighteous. Did we deserve that? No, we were the unrighteous. We didn't deserve it. And yet Jesus came to die for us. To reject substitutionary atonement is to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the heart of the good news. Jesus died in the place of real sinners. The only way for sinners to get to God was for Jesus to come to this earth obey His heavenly Father's law perfectly in the stead of real sinners and die a lawbreaker's death in the stead of real sinners. And the good news is that He's done that. That's what we celebrate every single week. Now, let's get into the controversy. Verse 18b, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. Now we get the first part, put to death in the flesh, Jesus died in the flesh, but then He was made alive in the Spirit. Now why would that be controversial? Well, in the first place, it's controversial because it's not talking about the resurrection. We all know that Jesus resurrected. He came back to life bodily. He didn't just resurrect spiritually. It wasn't just some sort of image or mass hysteria or something like that that saw Jesus walking around in, in like a ghost-like substance. He resurrected bodily. But this kind of being brought to life in the Spirit is uniquely different than the resurrection because He did something here, we're told, before He was actually resurrected. So He was brought to life in the Spirit. So because when He was made alive in the Spirit, He did something, then we have to say, okay, this is a little odd, or it seems a little, little odd, because there must have been some sort of pre-resurrection life for the man Jesus Christ before he was actually resurrected because he went and did some things before he was resurrected bodily. Now, in verse 4, we see he did something. Okay, Jesus, fully God, fully man, before he's resurrected, went and did something. What did he do? Look at verse 4. Or not verse 4. Why did I say verse 4? <laughs> totally off. Uh, in verse, uh, uh, why in the world is it in verse 4? I don't know. My notes were all off there. Okay, uh, look at verse 19. There we go. I'm all confused here now as I look at my Bible. Uh, here's what Jesus did. The pre-resurrected Jesus that was made alive in the Spirit went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey God when God's patience waited in the days of Noah 
while the ark was being prepared, in which, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. So before Jesus was resurrected and walked out of the tomb, he went and proclaimed something to the spirits that were in prison. And these spirits were those that were disobedient in the days of Noah. He went and did this, this prison. God was patient. They were evil. They mocked Noah and his family. They were being disobedient. And so Jesus goes and does something. He proclaims something to them before he's resurrected. He had a message for those evildoers. Now, there are three schools of thought on this passage about what Jesus was actually doing. Number one, Jesus went to proclaim victory to rebels against God. So he went to tell them, this is the position that I take, and I'll tell you why here in a second. So in this view, he went to tell them, I won. He went to proclaim to them what he actually did and to declare to them, I won, you are condemned for your own sin and rebellion. That's the first view. The second view was that Christ was preaching and his preaching was done in the Spirit through Noah. So somehow or another, Christ was preaching through Noah in that day. And in three, the spirits in prison refer to fallen angels and not to humans. So Jesus went to proclaim his victory to fallen angels and not to human beings. So, I think this is a great example of when the Scripture interprets the Scripture. And I think there is an actual clearer answer to this because of chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Look with me. If you have to flip one page, you can flip one page and just put your eyes there and you can see this. But this is why, starting in verse 6, for this is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead that through that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Here's what I think happened then. When Jesus died in the flesh, there was life in the Spirit before He's got life back to His body, and He's still fully God and fully man. So this is a difficult thing to think through as you're thinking through what's called the hypostatic union. Even as Jesus is about to die in the flesh, he's still reigning and ruling over the very people who are crucifying him. He's still holding all things together by the word of his power. Then he, he dies, and his spirit's alive, and he goes on a mission, and he goes to the spirits that are in prison. So that's all the people that were alive in the days of Noah in this wicked, evil, vile time, pre-Genesis 6. And he starts proclaiming a message to them. And I think in verse 6, we're told in chapter 4 that this message he went to proclaim is the gospel of Jesus. Hey guys, I came. The God that you were mocking, the God that you were ridiculing, the God that you were speaking evil against, those people, Noah and his family that you were mocking and ridiculing, I was actually their God. And I came and did what was required for men before a holy God for them to be right before God. And you have sinned against a holy God. And I have won. And your mockery has not gone unheard by the God of the universe. And you are judged not only for your, your, your vile acts before Genesis chapter 6, but you're also, you're also guilty because you're rejecting this gospel that I'm preaching to you now. So I think Jesus was going to the enemies of God and declaring to them, you did not win, I won. Jesus brings justice. But that's not all the controversy here. It goes on to say that uh, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then when we get this water image, we get into baptism and we get a clear statement about baptism and baptism 
saving. Baptism saves. Look how clear this is. Baptism, which corresponds to this, so baptism corresponds to them being safely brought through water. The eight, Noah and his family, safely brought through water. Then Peter goes, now baptism's like this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Saves you. Now here's what we immediately do when we hear a verse like that. We're like, well, but baptism doesn't save. But it says baptism saves. So we can't just say baptism doesn't save because God says baptism saves. So there's a controversy here. In fact, some people get their baptismal regeneration from this passage right here and say, look, faith is always intertwined here with baptism. The way somebody expresses their faith is through baptism and baptism saves. See, it says baptism saves. And the answer that we must give back if we reject that baptism justifies, it can't be that we say, well, baptism doesn't save because it says baptism saves. So baptism has to save. So the controversy then is, okay, well, in light of everything else about what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection, and actually what we just read about Christ's suffering once for sinners, the righteous for the un unrighteous, we all know that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus saves, that there's no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. That's in Jesus. So, on, well, how can baptism then save if Jesus saves? And the wrong response is just saying, well, baptism doesn't save, because it says it does. So... We have to figure out, well, in what way, then, does baptism save? We don't believe in baptismal regeneration, and we don't even believe in baptismal regeneration for a reason, but we still have this verse, so there's some way that baptism is going to save. So we've got to figure out what that means. Does it mean saved like regeneration? Like when a person, by the grace of God, God opens their heart, and they bow before the Lord, or like the thief on the cross cries out and says, remember me today. Uh, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And he's born again. And uh, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. When you or I, when, whenever it was in your life where you heard the, preach, the, the gospel preached or maybe uh, you'd been thinking about it for a while and the Holy Spirit was working and you started to feel conviction over your sin and realized, I have sinned against God and I've got to do, I, I, like, I got to get rid of this somehow. Like, I don't know how to get rid of this. I, I can't get rid of the sin here. I can't clean myself up. Whenever it was that you were born again, and whether it was a moment that you remember or a season in which you realized that, that that's when Jesus saved me, it was in that particular season. I can't give a, uh, an exact moment, but I know I went from death to life because everything changed about me from the inside out. There's, is, does it mean saved in that way? You know, because I mean, you remember when you, you know, prayed or seasons in your life where everything began to make sense for you, things that didn't make sense for you before. Does it mean save like that? Like regeneration, justification, adoption, and glorification? Is all we have to do is just put people in water and magically the water cleans somebody up? The water forgives their sins? Does it mean saved like that? Or does it mean saved in another way? And I think, I really, really think that the text, even though again, it's dusted up just, I mean, so much ink has been spilled through commentary work. So many type or keys have been typed through commentary work and talking about what does this mean or what does this mean. And I think there is a better way to read this passage. And I think it actually tells us, and there's some keys in the text telling us exactly what it means. Okay, look with me. Just everybody see it with your own eyes. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And then we're told not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God 
for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're told, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So baptism saves, but not in this way. This is what Peter's saying. Baptism saves, but not in this way, in this way. So there's a not in this way and an in this way statement. So then we can say, if we, if we navigate what it doesn't mean, and then whatever in this way means, then we've got clarity in, in what the meaning is about baptism saving. First, not as a removal of dirt from the body. I think this means, and again, why people are not for sure about this is because this is such unique language in the New Testament about this. What I think this means is that it does not clean you up spiritually. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's like we're categorically now talking about something different than justification, regeneration, adoption, glorification. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. It doesn't clean you up. Baptism doesn't save you in that way. It doesn't wash you clean of dirt spiritually. It doesn't get that stuff off of you. That's not what baptism does. It's not the thing it actually cleans up. Water does not then actually forgive your sins. So it's not the water that forgives your sins, changes you from the inside out. The water doesn't do that. It's a different kind of salvation. It does save in this way. Well, in what way then does it say it saves? Not as removal of dirt from the body, but it saves as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It saves as an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's what baptism does. Now, Warren Wearsby is a commentator. He's written a lot of commentaries on a lot of books of the Bible. And he had something that was particularly helpful here. And I just want to read the whole section for you. When Peter wrote that Noah and his family were saved by water... He was careful to explain that this illustration does not imply salvation by baptism. Baptism is a figure of what does save, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Water on the body or placed in water or body placed in water cannot remove the stains of sin. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. However, baptism does save us from one thing. Okay, Warren? Thank you. What what does it save us from? A bad conscience. Peter has already told his readers that a good conscience was important to a successful witness. And part of that good conscience is being faithful to our commitment to Christ as expressed in baptism. So what Warren Wearsby is saying is here's how we're saved. We're saved from a bad conscience as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, in this way, in this meaning we see that God's grace is communicated to us in this way. Um, Baptism, now in baptism we're told that baptism is making an appeal to God for a clean conscience. This is kind of a side note. Andy and I did a podcast just this uh, last week, it released, on cradle baptism, which is a believer's baptism. We, uh, as a church, we're a Baptist church, we wanted to explain why. But one of the reasons is that in this passage, the appeal and baptism go together. So our, our view is that infants cannot make this appeal, that we have to appeal to God for a clean conscience in and through baptism. And now we see that it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, baptism means absolutely nothing. Baptism is not this independent act. It's something that is demonstrating or pointing to something that actually is effective. But it does, in fact, save us from one thing. So let's just think about it like this, because I think this passage actually does give us insight. And for many people, 
because the, the peculiarity of it, for many people, uh, it's, a, it's just a common grace, or it's a grace that God has given us that we've actually not tapped into. Because there's times in our Christian life where our consciences are e- either seared or our consciences are at work within us in a negative to, like to a negative degree where we're uh, maybe lacking assurance of salvation or at a conscience level we're feeling like we're not a child of God or uh, we're feeling condemnation even though the scriptures tell us to not have condemnation. And in those moments where our conscience is at work in our, in our life to a negative degree and not a positive degree, there's some kind of saving power here in baptism for us. If you've been baptized in your life, there's something for you to remember about your baptism. There's something to look back at and thank the Lord for. And it's not that the baptism itself saves you as converts you, makes you be born again, but there's something in it as you look back that helps you and saves your conscience in that moment. Amen. When you look back at your baptism, it should be a salvation for your conscience in those times of questioning. So it's not the only remedy that we're given for doubt, fear, anxieties. However, for many of us, this might be like a tool in the biblical toolkit for us to pull out and to remember, and the next time you're going through doubt, remember when you were baptized, what that was all about. It is at baptism that we see a demonstration of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. When I was baptized, it was this demonstration of what Jesus did for me in his life, death, and resurrection. And as I remember my baptism, I'm remembering what Christ has done for me. I'm not first and foremost thinking about what I'm doing for God, but I'm remembering what this is a demonstration of. So when somebody goes into these waters, and by the way, we're going to try to fix this baptistry this year so we don't have to have ice-cold baptisms throughout the wintertime. There's some real hardcore people here in the last few years that know what that's like. And when we go under that water, it's, it's, a, it's this visible we're, we're watching and that person can forever remember that, that I am, I'm united by the grace of God with Christ. And what Jesus did for me in his life, death, and resurrection is comfort to my soul, and baptism helps me with that. And it saves me in the moment that my conscience is pricked in the wrong sort of way. As Jesus has been raised to life, and as surely as he's been raised to life, you have been raised to life. If you are born again, you have been saved by Jesus and then, as an extra comfort, your baptism, as you walked in obedience, your baptism is now another form of salvation for you at a conscience level. Baptism is a great gift from the Lord. Um, we're comforted. We're saved in that moment. Not saved like, saved like Christ saves, but saved. The text says that we're saved, so we have to say baptism saves. Now, this is through the work of Jesus. This is not because of what we have done for Jesus, but it's because of what Christ has done for us that baptism saves. Again, if Christ didn't live, die, and come back from the grave, baptism is totally meaningless. There's no meaning whatsoever there, and there's no power there. I want you to see verse 22 and the explicit statement that Peter makes. And we'll finish in verse 21. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he ties salvation saving, baptism saving you through to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 22, who has gone into heaven 
and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. I want you to see the power and the position of Jesus. The reason baptism is this thing that Peter tells us it is, is because Jesus really is on his throne. This is a massive and consequential verse for us to understand. It has implications in eschatology. It has implications in our everyday life. It has implications in and through baptism as well. Jesus has been resurrected and now is in heaven and is at the right hand of God. And we're told that now, this is after his resurrection... Something has happened after his resurrection that was uniquely different than before his life, death, and resurrection. Now, as he sits on his throne, reigning and ruling, angels, authorities, powers, you could say all lesser authorities and powers, this would include Satan and demons, have been subjected to him. Jesus is the highest and supreme authority, and he sits on his throne over everything, He's at the right hand of the Father. And everything right now is subjected to Him. Now, baptism would have no consequential meaning at all to our conscience unless Jesus is where He is positionally. Baptism turns our attention away from ourselves and to where Christ currently is. This is the connection again with the conscience. We're looking back, we're remembering going under the water and coming up out of the water, remembering what Christ did for us, and we're remembering where Christ is now. Anxiety is everywhere. There are studies that are out that directly correlate anxiety within young people, younger people to social media. Social media has been around. I remember, I think the first time I got a smartphone was in, I got on Facebook in 2006, and it's uh, now however many years from 2006 till today, and with Twitter, Instagram, and everything, anxiety levels are everywhere. How many people in your life do you know of that deal with anxiety? I mean, people talk about anxiety all the time. Children dealing with anxiety, paralyzing anxiety. I don't want to minimize if you experience that or even experience that regularly. But anxiety is this uh, unique thing because uh, the Bible tells us, Jesus says, don't be anxious about anything. Like, there's a lot of repenting that needs to happen. And there's a lot of things that people say, well, that's a, that's a mental disorder, that's a mental illness. And certainly there are mental disorders, certainly there are mental illnesses that make it more difficult for people to struggle with. But when you see such a pervasive issue within a society, it's one of the reasons why our nation doesn't just need to re, like revoke Roe versus Wade, but we need mass repentance. When things like anxiety have become so normalized for everybody, where you just, you hear it and you're like, yeah, it's, I mean, everybody deals with anxiety. Such a, a, it's, it's just, it's permeated every area of society and it, almost to the point where it's just accepted in Christian circles that anxiety is, is just, if you just say you have anxiety, it's like, well, great, thanks for being so authentic. And nobody says, well, you need to repent of that. You need to repent of that. Jesus says, don't be anxious. We don't get to turn around and say, okay, well, I'm, all right, I'm going to be anxious today. Like, no, fight that. We're against that. So baptism saves as an appeal to God for a clean conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it's not just the resurrection. It's also the ascension and the reign of Christ that bring us comfort, that save our consciences. And in a world that has no footing, no foundation for almost anything, 
And even as, as church and Christians are experiencing levels of anxiety as they turn on the news and they see everything crumbling and falling apart and thinking about, my goodness, our children and our grandchildren, what kind of world are they going to inherit? And all of the things, the dominoes in your mind that think, well, if that means this and this means that, and if they're going to own everything and we're supposed to be happy about it, Charles Schwab is going to take over the world and all this kind of stuff. It's like <laughs> World Economic Forum, and that's all like a reality. Like We have crazy, tyrannical people that's not even like conspiracy theory stuff. But if we allow our mind to go there and forget, wait a minute, wait a second. Charles Schwab is under the feet of Jesus. He's behind the gates of hell. Uh, I don't have anything to fear. And as I remember back and think about the baptism, that I'm united to the person and the work of Christ, and as surely as he has saved me, just as surely as that is true, he is surely reigning right now. He's ruling right now. The devil is not in charge of the cosmos. The devil is the defeated foe. And he is right now, even, bound in ways that he was not bound pre-life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's limited. He is not in charge He's in charge of the way of the world, the thinking of the world. But we have to keep these distinctions in order to understand that Jesus is reigning and ruling. He holds this whole world together with the word of his power. He is sovereign over all things. And thing are, things are marching along. And as we, like the prophet Habakkuk, sit in our hands and wonder, God, why are you sitting idly by and doing nothing? He's not. And as we remember back to our baptism, and we think about his resurrection and his present reign, and his kingdom advancing. We think about those things and we, we're comforted. Our conscience is saved. And I think for me, because you know, passages like this, when you study passages or verses that don't fit your systematic category, they don't fit your theological system or your denominational background or whatever, you can look at passages like that and just think, well, surely that, that doesn't mean that. And you don't actually find what's there. You don't dig. You don't mine. You don't pray and wrestle. And I think for people like Baptists or people that are, you know, when I say Baptist, if you're non-denominational, you're a Baptist, whether you realize it or not. You're a credo Baptist. Okay? Um, you're not, and so um, you read their verses like this, and you know, the Christian church and Lutherans, Lutherans in the Christian church, they, they have these ideas of baptismal regeneration. So it's like, when you look at verses like this, and they're like, oh no, we're not Lutheran. We're not, you know, the Christian church or the church of Christ. We're not that. So... Then you just kind of like go over it real quick. Well, surely it can't mean that because we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. And friends, it's the Word of God. And if we just gloss over it because we don't like it or it's confusing, we miss something. And some of us, some of you who deal with assurance, fear, anxiety, you need to see that baptism saves. And you can have great help in your conscience if you'll remember your baptism. If you'll remember what Christ has done for you and what that demonstrates, look back and remember, you have been united to Christ. And Jesus is now reigning and ruling and everything is under his authority. I hope you know that. Bill Gates can't do whatever Bill Gates wants to do. There's limits. And unless he repents and believes, uh, there's no hope of heaven for him. And anybody else, their, their time is running short. And you know, long 
after Bill Gates dies or Charles Schwab dies, the World Economic Forum and Elon Musk and everybody else, um, there's still going to be a church. And the church is going to keep growing. You guys have heard me say this. Since uh, the 12, and then Acts chapter 5, we have 5,000. And then Christians begin to grow everywhere and everywhere and everywhere. And, and Christianity continue to grow and continue to grow and continue to grow and continue to grow. Friends, we're the biggest religion in the world. That's good. And the trends are going in the right direction. There's more Christians. You say, well, not in America. Yeah, or maybe all the fake and phony Christians are being exposed. Maybe there's actually a real revival that could be taking place, maybe happening here, where the wheats and the tares are being separated and those that were just cultural. Yeah, I'm Christian. I put a, you know, a, a, you know I give my business cards out with a Jesus fish because it gets me more business kind of thing. We talked about that in the negative world that we were talking about a couple weeks ago where that's not seen as a positive thing anymore. But maybe, just maybe, the sifting, the great sifting that's happening in, in our country right now, it, from pastors to churches all across, maybe it's a really good thing. And maybe it's a good thing that, that tares don't go around claiming they're Christians and living like hell. And so I think it's a great, I think God's doing some things. If we can have eyes to see it. You know, the prophet Habakkuk, one of the things we're praying through, preaching through is the book of Ruth and then the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And in that book, the prophet is complaining to God over and over again. The wicked ones are gaining ground, God. What are you doing? Why are you sitting on your hands? And God reveals his purposes. I'm not. They're not going to get the last laugh. I'm not sitting on my hands. I'm doing something, bud. I'm doing something. And this passage Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers. Authorities and powers. If you see authorities, if you see those with power, and this is not just in the physical realm, even in the spiritual realm, they are subject to Jesus. It's just a powerful statement. Baptism turns our attention to this Christ, powerful Christ. Christ that saves, the Christ that sustains, the Christ that rules, the Christ that is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And since that's true, and our baptism is a sign of our union with Him, we belong to the one who's in charge of everything. That helps our conscience. That brings comfort. God, thank you that things are going to be okay. The devil's not going to win. Assurance of salvation is ours. Assurance of victory is ours. Here's the thing. Many Christians needlessly struggle with the assurance of salvation. Needlessly. We needlessly struggle with the assurance of salvation. Remember your baptism and look to Christ on His throne. Remember your baptism and look to Christ who's on His throne in charge of everything. And you'll find, God, thank you for saving me in this moment. Baptism saves since everything is subject to Him, even the Supreme Courts, even those that rage against the Supreme Courts, no matter what happens in the political realm, we have hope. We have hope. It's good news. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father,